Minsk, the capital of Belorussia, one of 15 republics that comprised the Soviet Union. It was here that Lee Harvey Oswald arrived in January 1960. It was a new year, a new decade, and he was sure the beginning of a new life in a new country. But it wouldn't be long before he grew disillusioned with that life and the country that he first thought was some sort of paradise. I'm Paul Brandis. You're listening to Countdown to Dallas, a podcast series based on my book of the same title. When he defected, Oswald thought he was special and deserved to live in Moscow, the most prestigious city in the Soviet Union, indeed the communist world. This presumptuousness dovetails with a six-year evaluation of Oswald by Dr. Gene Riddle, a clinical psychologist who presented his findings on Oswald at the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas in 2019. And this is a good time to introduce a notion that I think is very important uh, to understanding him, and that's the notion that he felt he had a destiny. He felt that something about him, his, he was so grandiose that the universe had plans for him. He wouldn't have necessarily put it in those terms, but his, his inner belief was, I'm so amazing, I'm so wonderful, that I must be destined for good things. Oswald thought those plans would involve his studying heavy-duty subjects like economics, history, and philosophy, a tall order given that he hadn't even graduated from high school in America and spoke just a smattering of basic Russian. It was also presumptuous because the Soviets did not agree that Oswald was special. In the Soviet era, you needed permission to live in Moscow. Oswald did not qualify, and living in the next most prestigious city, Leningrad, to date St. Petersburg, was not in the cards either, nor was Kiev, the capital of Soviet Ukraine. And thus Oswald found himself in Minsk. He didn't even know where it was, and at first thought he was being shipped off to Siberia. Oswald was met at the train by in-tourist guide Rosa Kuznetsova. Within two months, he would be given a privilege that few ordinary Soviet citizens enjoyed, an apartment all to himself. This was an incredible luxury given that millions of Soviets typically shared one apartment with entire families living in one room, two if they were lucky, and sharing kitchen and bathroom facilities with another family. Minsk, after all, had been wiped out in World War II, with an estimated 85% of all buildings destroyed. And yet Oswald was given a place all to himself. Conspiracy buffs think this is surely fishy. But the reason for this is that the Soviets simply did not trust Oswald, and the KGB reasoned that giving him his own apartment would make it easier to keep tabs on him. Decades later, KGB official Vyacheslav Nikonov reviewed Oswald's file from his time in Minsk and spoke to the PBS program Frontline. Oswald looked very suspicious to the KGB and to the factory authorities because he was uh, not interested in Marxism. He didn't attend any Marxist classes. He didn't read any Marxist literature. And uh, he didn't attend even uh, the labor union meetings. So the question was, what uh, was he doing there? 
Nikonov mentioned the factory authorities. Oswald had also been given a job as a metal worker at the Gorizont Radio Factory. This was a low-skilled, menial job. For Oswald, it must have been a come-down. He thought he was special. The Soviet authorities didn't think so. But it paid well and allowed Oswald to live decently. Here's Edward J. Epstein, author of three books on the Kennedy assassination, speaking to Frontline. He found himself, according to his own reporting of it in his diary, living a life that was much more luxurious and much more respectable than the life he had lived anywhere else in his young life. He had the possibility of being respected. He had a good job. He was given a very good position. But that's not how Oswald seemed to interpret it. In his diary, his historic diary as he called it, he began complaining. Even though he professed to love communism, Oswald wrote of his dislike that a portrait of Vladimir Lenin, the founder of the Soviet state, hung on the factory wall. He also indicated displeasure that employees were forced to do group exercises each morning. So here's Oswald after so much drama, the defection, his angry diatribe, as expressed at the American embassy, to renounce his American citizenship, to live in Moscow, to study big, brainy subjects like he felt an intellectual like himself deserved. Instead, he found himself relegated to a cog in a giant machine, a common laborer. By Soviet standards, the money was good, but as Stephen Beschloss, author of The Gunman and His Mother, an illuminating book on Oswald and his troubled background, points out, so what? He's sent off to Minsk to work in a radio factory, you know, operating a lathe, cutting metal with loud noises, you know, getting this money that, uh, you know, that's more than, than the average Russian has in a nice apartment, which is more than a Russian has, but nothing he can do with the money. The place is pretty dismal, uh, obviously. And, uh, and the reason... I think that's also important is that he went with this initial imagination that finally he was going to find a place where there's a better life. And what happens? All the old baggage reemerges. It seems kind of ironic that Oswald, who had declared his bitter hatred of capitalism, soon realized that there wasn't anything to do with the money he was making now. Oswald had thought that the Soviet Union was some sort of paradise, but he was now getting his first dose of reality, including the fact that individuality did not really exist, and, like that Lenin portrait and the always-present KGB, Big Brother was always watching. So the old baggage, as Beschloss calls it, reemerges. As we've established in earlier episodes of this podcast, you have to remember that Oswald had always been a malcontent, always thought he was being mistreated during his childhood in the Marines and now in Mother Russia. It was a constant that would accompany Oswald throughout his entire life right up to the end. Meanwhile, as he settled into his new life, by the way, that song is called Pahonia, a patriotic song that Oswald almost certainly heard, it gradually dawned on him that any initial fascination with him as an American defector and all was beginning to wear off. After all, by now, Oswald was just a guy working a menial factory job, just like your average Ivan. He did make, and this was quite rare for him, what he thought were friends. 
But again, this was the Soviet Union, a brutal police state, and a team of 20 KGB agents kept this young American under constant surveillance. His apartment was bugged, and those so-called friends were forced to report on him. One was a workmate named Pavel Golovachev, who spoke to Frontline three decades ago. I was made by one of their people, and it was like this. He said, you're a country, ask you. You're a country, demands. There is a foreigner here. It's in the country's interest for security, and so on. That was early on, but I told him about it a year later. I had three or four meetings with the KGB people. They gave me little assignments to provoke him, saying, try this out on him and see what he says. From an intelligence standpoint, these fishing expeditions yielded next to nothing. After the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, archives, if they're to be believed, indicated that authorities considered Oswald practically worthless. I mentioned that Oswald had already begun to complain about his new life in the Soviet Union. On May 1st, May Day, a major holiday, he watched a parade and then went to a party at the apartment of a work colleague, Alexander Ziger. Ziger spoke English and told Oswald that coming to the Soviet Union had been a mistake. Oswald would write in his diary, quote, Ziger advises me to go back to USA. It's the first voice of opposition I have heard. I respect Ziger. He says many things and relates many things I do not know about the USSR, unquote. And then Oswald adds, quote, I began to feel uneasy inside. It's true, unquote. By this point, Oswald had only been in the Soviet Union for six months, and he's learning that the so-called workers' paradise is not what he thought. That same day, May 1st, something else happened, an incident that would raise questions about Oswald and whether he had, in fact, shared intelligence with the Soviets. We'll be right back. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? 
I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. On display in Moscow, the wreckage of Pilot Francis Powers' U-2 reconnaissance plane for Muscovites and foreign newsmen to see. As the Soviet An American U-2 spy plane was shot down over Siberia. U-2 was the same kind of plane that was based at Atsugi, the air base in Japan, where Oswald had been stationed for a few months in 1957 and 58. Now, conspiracy buffs are sure that it's no coincidence that Oswald just happened to be working as a radar operator at a base where U-2 operations were conducted and the shooting down of one just a year and a half later. Let's revisit this. The U-2, which is still in service today, by the way, is an extraordinary plane. It could climb far higher than other aircraft. The Soviets called it the Black Lady of Espionage. Now, there's no question that as a radar operator, Oswald knew basic details of the U-2. And there were things about the U-2 that the Soviets were dying to get their hands on. The aircraft's high-tech reconnaissance and electronic equipment, for example. But Oswald had no access to this. At least no one in six decades has ever produced evidence that he did. But the Americans worried anyway. Frontline researcher Scott Malone uncovered documents to this effect. These files clearly show that there's hardly an intelligence agency that did not have an interest in Lee Harvey Oswald. Navy intelligence was worried about radar secrecy may have given to the Russians. The um, uh, FBI was concerned that an imposter might be using his papers to come to sneak into the United States, and the CIA had both a positive and a counterintelligence interest. And it is true that the Soviets briefly considered recruiting Oswald. At least that's what the KGB's Vladimir Semichasny said. Counterintelligence and intelligence, they both looked him over to see what he was capable of. But unfortunately, neither could find any ability at all. Years later, after all this, in the most comprehensive look at the assassination and every facet of Oswald's life, I'm talking about the 20-year, 1,600-page Reclaiming History by the legendary prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi, he notes, and I'll quote, Although conspiracy theorists have made much of Oswald's brief proximity to the U-2, there is no evidence that his particular unit actually dealt with the spy plane's operations, nor is there any evidence that Oswald displayed more than a normal curiosity about the plane, unquote. You also have to remember that just because Oswald had been stationed at the base where the U-2 flew doesn't mean he had access to it. U-2 operations were essentially run from a base within a base. Planes were kept in a hangar, watched around the clock by heavily armed guards. Again, to a conspiracy buff, everything is fishy, everything is suspicious. But they've had six long decades to prove any sort of verifiable connection between the shooting down of the U-2 and Oswald, and they have not. Hall of Columns was packed for the most dramatic trial that even Russia has staged for many years. 
Francis Gary Powers, US pilot of the U-2 espionage plane, had pleaded guilty and could only hope that the... Now, just to wrap up this part of our story, Francis Gary Powers was sentenced to a decade in a Soviet prison, but would be released a year and a half later in a prisoner swap with Rudolf Abel, a KGB agent who had been caught by the FBI in 1957. There's a great movie about this, by the way, Bridge of Spies, starring Tom Hanks. In the fall of 1960, Oswald marked his first year in the Soviet Union. He also met a pretty young woman named Ella German. He describes her as a silky, black-haired Jewish beauty. He later said it was probably love at first sight. Ella does not reciprocate, keeping it casual. Oswald dated around, writing in his diary of a, quote, growing loneliness, unquote, despite bragging about his, quote, conquest, his word, of another girl. Meanwhile, back in the United States, a new era was dawning. And I can assure you that uh, every degree of mind and spirit that I possess will be devoted to the long-range interests of the United States and to the cause of freedom around the world. So now uh, my wife and I prepare for a new administration and uh, for a new baby. John F. Kennedy, just 43 years old, had been elected president. Now, let's take a moment and consider this. In the decades after Kennedy's assassination, conspiracy buffs point out, and on this one point, I think they're correct, that there's no indication that Oswald ever hated Kennedy personally. Therefore, they say, how could he have killed him? But such reasoning, I think, is oversimplistic for Oswald's own diary provides an answer. Remember, he scribbled, quote, the United States is a country I hate, and while he did not dislike Kennedy personally, he despised what he represented. The president, after all, was the symbol of a system that Oswald hated deeply. Vincent Bugliosi in Reclaiming History, a book I recommend highly, by the way, builds upon this theory, writing that Kennedy was, quote, the ultimate quintessential representative of a society for which he had grinding contempt. Therefore, he adds that when Oswald fired at Kennedy, quote, in his adult mind, he was firing at the United States of America. New Year's Eve came with a dramatic and impulsive gesture from Oswald. Ella German, the dark-haired beauty I mentioned a few minutes ago, Oswald decided to drop in at her apartment bearing chocolates and rang in 1961 with her family. In his diary, Oswald hadn't mentioned Ella in more than two months, but now he decided that he wanted to marry her. The next night, it's January the 1st, 1961, he popped the question, but Ella said no. The rejection shocks Oswald. His diary says, quote, my love is real, but she has none for me. Oswald added, quote, I am stunned. She snickers at my awkwardness. In turning to go, I realized she was never serious with me, but only exploited my being an American to get the envy of the other girls. Boy, am I miserable. You have to remember, Lee Harvey Oswald did not handle rejection well. Just a year earlier, he tried to kill himself after being told that he would have to leave the Soviet Union. 
Now, the woman of his dreams has turned him down. Ella's rejection is the final straw for Oswald. After just a year in the Soviet Union, he's fed up. Asked by authorities if he wants Soviet citizenship, he says no. In his diary, he writes, quote, I am starting to reconsider my desire about staying. The work is drab. The money I get has nowhere to be spent. No nightclubs or bowling alleys. No places of recreation except the trade union dances. I have had enough. Meantime, eight time zones to the West. I, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear that you will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And, will and after Kennedy was sworn in, you'll never believe what happened next. You can't make this up. January the 26th, 1961, Kennedy hadn't even been in the White House for a week when guess who arrives in town asking to see him? None other than Marguerite Oswald. She knew her son was in the Soviet Union, wasn't sure where, and was desperate for details. Surely the president could help her, right? Historian Stephen Beschloss picks up the incredible story. She went there. Uh, she had gotten word that her, now finally that her boy was in Russia. Uh, she was convinced that the U.S. government was involved and they had to have some answers for her. You know, Lee had really detached himself. He had stopped communicating when he was in Russia. He, in fact, had, uh, when people asked, he said he was an orphan. He had written letters to his, you know, his mother and his brother, basically brothers, basically saying, you know, I'm I'm done. You all are part of a kind of capitalist system, uh, convinced that, you know, your world is a, is the right world where I'm no longer a part of that world. He was looking to defect to the Soviet Union and went through that whole process, convinced that there was a better life, at least at the beginning for him in Russia. And, you know, Marguerite, frustration of frustrations, struggled to be able to to find him. And so she went to Washington, you know, gathered together the money she had, took a train to get there. I can't recall if it was from Texas or from New Orleans that she traveled. But once there, you know, got on a payphone and called the White House, tried to speak to the president said who she was. And uh, ultimately, there was a, a an assistant within the State Department who agreed to speak with her. And, you know, some weeks later, she at least did find a connection point to where, where Lee was. As I mentioned, the U.S. government knew that Oswald was in the Soviet Union. I mean, he had stormed into the Moscow embassy in October 1959 and said he wanted to renounce his American citizenship. That prompted an FBI agent in Fort Worth, John Fain, to open a file on Oswald. The FBI wanted to know whether Oswald was some sort of national security risk. We'll hear more about Fain and the FBI down the road. Around the same time, there was a security scare involving President Kennedy. One day, he and an old World War II buddy, Paul Red Fay, were walking from the Army-Navy Club back to the White House. That's about a half-mile walk, if you know Washington. Suddenly, a Secret Service agent jumped between Kennedy and a suspicious-looking man. A startled Kennedy told Fay that the incident was a reminder that his president he could be assassinated. I guess there is always the possibility, Kennedy said. Of course, no one thought it unusual that a president would even be out walking around in the open. This was 1961, after all, a more innocent era. We'll also discuss this a bit later as well. 
But now back to Oswald. I mentioned a few minutes ago that he was beginning to have second thoughts about living in the Soviet Union. On February the 1st, he wrote to the American embassy in Moscow. According to his diary entry, he wrote, quote, I would like to go back to the U.S. What? Leave the Soviet Union? It had only taken a little more than a year for Oswald to admit that it wasn't the paradise he had deluded himself into thinking. But return to America? Oswald hated America. He said so. Hated it. He had written his own family that he wanted no part of it and that he would kill any American, any American, if needed. So, let's review again the Oswald that we've discussed in prior episodes. The hothead with the explosive temper, the know-it-all, the high school dropout, the twice-court-martialed Marine, now relegated to a dead-end job in a dreary provincial Soviet town and rejected by the woman he professes to love. Won't anyone see the brilliance that he sees in the mirror each day? He hated America and had defected to the Soviet Union. Now he hated that. He would later say, quote, it stunk. This is the story, the fantastically true story. Why, it all sounds like an episode of his favorite TV show, I Led Three Lives. Remember, we discussed that in episode two of this series. One episode of that show was titled Confused Comrade. That's certainly what Lee Harvey Oswald seemed to be. What would he do now? Anyway, if you like this podcast, check out my book of the same title, Countdown to Dallas. Thanks to historian Stephen Beschloss. Sound from the PBS program Frontline, its 1993 episode titled Who Was Lee Harvey Oswald is Must Viewing. Also sound from Universal International News, NBC News Archives, and Ziv Television Productions. Our editor and producer, Aaron Land. Audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. Executive producers, Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks so much for listening. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.